If you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the third chapter of John's Gospel. If you're using a Pew Bible, that's page 888. Today we're going to read verses 22 through 36 together. Now since mid-March, we've been working our way through the book of Acts on Sunday morning. But because of the occasion, I wanted to pause our study of Acts and go to another text. And then my mind started thinking, all right, where do we go? I mean, there's 66 books we could go to. Where do we go? And I had some conversations with Bill Davis, one of our ruling elders here at Trinity, and asked him for just a significant truth or theme that he has seen throughout his time here at Trinity. And he responded with something that was cemented in his mind sometime after the second pastor arrived. So I'm, I'm number three. Uh, first pastor was Randy. Second pastor was Sam. And Randy moved from Corinth. He received a call to go and minister elsewhere. And there was this feeling of just woe and what are we going to do? We've Our first pastor, we've... He's moving, and then you have people from other churches telling you, hey, be prepared. It could be 18 months, could be two years before you get someone in. I think you told me it was 42 days, and you had a formal acceptance from Sam McDonald. Sam was coming from Malawi. He spent a decade or so there in Malawi as a missionary with his family and was coming back to the States and wound up coming to Trinity. And through that whole process, Bill said that the thing that became clear in his mind was coming to understand who really owns this church. Who the church belonged to. Maybe there was some confusion at one point uh, as to that. But what he saw was that this church does not belong to one particular member or to one particular family or to one particular pastor. It's Christ's church. He planted it. He sustained it. He has brought families in and he has moved families and individuals to other places. It's an amazing thought that the same one who is currently seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father and the same one who owns all authority in heaven and on earth, that same one is head over the church and that includes this church. And he is going to use it any way he sees fit. He will use this congregation in whatever way pleases him. And he will bring in and take away families and individuals according to his purpose and pleasure. So that discussion of who really owns this church drove me to the third chapter of John's Gospel. And as we open it together, it's my prayer that in hearing the words of John the Baptist... 
And in seeing more of our Lord Jesus, my prayer is that you would be encouraged to persevere and continue in the good works that our God has for us. Let's pray before we read our text. Father God, we know that your Son, Jesus Christ, came from heaven. He came from you and brought your words with you. Father, we have your word before us this morning. We thank you for it, and we ask that you would use it in a mighty way. We know that this is not a a dead old religious textbook, but it is alive and active. So, Father, would you use, use it this morning for the good of your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptized. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. There is such a wonderful message here for our little church. It's a message that, Lord willing, will not only be our focus over the next 15 years, but for the next 115 years. And the gospel writer sets up this story by telling us first some context. Jesus and John the Baptist are both ministering to people. They're both baptizing people, and they're doing so in pretty close proximity. Now, we don't know exactly 
Where Anon was, but from the guys I read, the best guess is that Jesus and John the Baptist are about four to six miles apart. They're close to one another, doing the same ministry, baptizing and and preaching. And there's also a difference, though. Even though they're close and they're both baptizing, there's a difference in that the ministry of Jesus is on the rise. He's on the front nine of his ministry, whereas John is on the back nine. He's nearing the end. You can see in verse 24 in that parenthesis, for John had not yet been put in prison. It's coming, but it hasn't happened yet. So he's in the back nine of his ministry, John the Baptist. But remember, he has had an incredibly popular ministry. We're told that multitudes of people from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, they're going out to see John. People from all levels of society, the rich and the poor, all are going out to hear him preach and be baptized. Even King Herod, the man who would eventually order John beheaded, even Herod at one time invited John the Baptist to come and preach. Mark 6 tells us that John, John preached to Herod, and Herod was greatly perplexed, but heard him gladly. So John the Baptist's ministry has drawn crowds over the years. It's even drawn the audience of a king. But at this point in history, there is another ministry taking off. And the crowds are going elsewhere. They're going to hear the teaching of another. They're going to be baptized by another. Instead of traveling to see John, they're traveling to see Jesus. And this change, this movement is what sets up this whole conversation between John the Baptist and his loyal disciples. Verse 25 tells us that a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, we don't know exactly what was said in this discussion. I I imagine the Jew did not think that uh, John the Baptist's baptism needed to take place in in the first place. But, But you can guess and assume that there was some level of taunting going on, especially by the reaction we get from John's disciples. I can imagine him saying, you know, that guy over there must have the real cleansing water. He must be doing something right. He must have it. And you guys don't. John the Baptist must be washed up. Look where everyone is going. How ironic is it? The, the Baptist is being outbaptized by someone else. Again, we don't have their exact words, but there is some form of ridicule, some taunting. In comparing the growing success of Jesus to the shrinking influence of John. And this really bothers them. They get hot. They don't like the fact that their teacher is fading and they're no longer number one. And the crowds are flocking to someone else. I mean, their their master had been so kind and generous to Jesus. Their master had even baptized Jesus. And now, 
Jesus is taking followers from John. How is that right? This interaction sent them over the edge. Maybe there was growing frustration that just boiled over. And they go to their master. They go to John the Baptist and they say, I'll paraphrase. Rabbi, you know the one who is with you on the other side of the Jordan. You know the one who you authorized with your witness. Well, now he's competing with us. He's baptizing too, and everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. Rabbi, you're losing it. What, what do we do? Do you get the picture of what's going on, this tension? You can feel it. Something you care deeply about might be coming to an end. They're frustrated that Jesus is attracting more attention than their master that they loved and supported. Now, we might want to credit them with some, I don't know, some positive or good intention. But I think if you really dig down here as to their motives, what's driving this? This opposition to the ministry of Jesus. Because let's face it, opposition to the ministry of Jesus is, is never a positive thing. What's driving this? I believe it's envy. And I'll define envy for you. I'll use the definition found from another pastor. He says, envy is a mingling of a desire for something with the resentment that another is enjoying it and you are not. Okay, does that make sense? I want something and someone else has it and I don't and I resent them. Does that make sense? You have what I want. Maybe I resent you. Maybe hatred even sprouts up in my heart. That's what we see here. I want to give you some examples just to help cement this definition into your mind. Listen, I just came up with these uh, in, in my study. These are not intentionally aimed at anyone. <laughs> Maybe you have a friend who has the looks or body type you want. And because they have it and you do not, maybe deep down there's a negative feeling towards them. Maybe you have a child that is chronically sick and you're always going to the dock and you just can't get over it and it's wearing you out. And, and your neighbor's kids are always outside and they're eating dirt and playing in their cold rain and they never seem to get sick. And you resent them for it. Maybe you and your spouse want to grow your family and have more children, but you're unable to. But you have a friend who can blink and get pregnant. It makes you angry. Maybe you die for a starting spot on your team, but you're sitting on the bench, second string, and you have a really hard time cheering on your teammate 
that's ahead of you. Maybe you resent the person who got the job that you applied for. The person who got hired instead of you. Or maybe, oh, this is, this is ugly. Maybe you're a pastor. And you see other churches growing. And your church either appears to be stagnant or growing at a trickle. And your heart hardens. And there is frustration or maybe even disdain growing. Envy can lead to some dark places. John the Baptist's disciples were overcome with envy. They wanted their master to have a following. They believed in what he was doing. They were bought in, fiercely loyal. And then they see Jesus and everyone is going to him. And he has what they want. And they're resentful. The success of this other ministry really bothers them. And now this, this is a common thing in churches. This is a common thing where we care more about the growth and prosperity and increase of our church and our denomination and our tribe. We care more about that than we do the growth, prosperity, increase of the church universal. If people are coming to faith and being discipled and trusting in Jesus, but they're flocking to another church, it drives us crazy. And we can't do what we should do, which is rejoice with that sister church. I'll paraphrase J.C. Ryle here. He says, quote, There is a generation of people who can see no spiritually good work unless it happens within the confines of their own congregation. So much so that they are ready to shut men and women out of heaven unless they will enter under their banner. That is ugly. And we better beware because the seeds of that sin are already planted in our hearts. So before we move on from envy, I would challenge you to honestly consider your life and your desires. What is it that tempts you to be envious of others? I've given you a handful of examples. Can you identify those envious thoughts or longstanding resentments or annoyances that you have at the success of others? Maybe there's a specific way in which you identify with John's disciples. And I would plead with you as I've been doing myself all week in my office. Would you confess those envious thoughts and feelings? Would you repent of them? Would you lay them at the feet of Jesus and walk away? And in their place, would you pray, Lord, enable me by your power to rejoice with my friend and the good gifts you've given to them. By your grace, would I be glad for the blessing taking place in the life of another. By your grace, would I be able to celebrate the success of my friend and not wish it was mine. And when it comes to the church, 
wherever and whenever I see real grace, wherever the gospel is being proclaimed, wherever people are gathering for its hearing, wherever real discipleship and accountability and training is taking place, wherever you are showing out, Lord, enable me to be glad and rejoice and not be like John's disciples here. The only hearts that can pray that way are hearts that understand what we have been given through Christ and the grace that is ours. But we'll talk about that a little more at the end. But oh, that the Spirit of God would change us so that we could really honestly celebrate and share in the gladness over God's gifts to others. Even if, again, I know we're, this is the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, even if we believe that we might have been able to do something better, we celebrate with them and be thankful for the good that's being done. All this, of course, is a segue into John's response. They come to him and say, we're losing people to Jesus. What are we going to do? And beginning in verse 27, he answers them and says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John is saying, Jesus is baptizing and all are going to him because God is giving them to him. It's not going to do you any good to be envious because everything Jesus Christ has and everything we have is given to us from heaven. And we can only receive what he gives to us. And if God decides to give someone else more, we cannot stop it. And guess what? We have no right to complain about it because it's a gift. It's all grace. We don't deserve any of the gifts he gives to us. You remember those illustrations we went through, the ways we're envious of others. I want you to think of those, remember those. And then apply verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. So whatever that thing is that drives you crazy, whatever causes those feelings of annoyance and, and frustration, remember verse 27, that everything you have and everything your neighbors have, all of it was given to them and given to us from God. And who are we to question him? Who are we to say, Lord, why did you give something here and not something there? Why did you choose to give them more and this person less? John the Baptist understands that having acceptance of your fellow man, that's what Jesus has here. Everyone is flocking to him. He has their acceptance and that is a gift given by God. Psalm 75 was probably bouncing around in John's mind. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 says, 
For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Come on, we're Presbyterians. We believe in and love and preach the sovereignty of God. And that God will put one down and lift another up. And who are we to complain or question? Everything comes from his hand. And knowing that we are to submit to his sovereign appointment. That's the initial response John gives. And then he goes on, and I'm going to skip verse 28 and go to 29. He says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John's saying that not all gifts, what, what, he's saying that all gifts are from heaven and you're completely misunderstanding my role. The fact that you would come to me and say what you just said betrays the fact you don't understand my role. You don't understand what I'm doing. I am not the bridegroom. I'm not the one getting married. I am the friend of the bridegroom. Now, I'm sure no one in here has ever been to a wedding where someone who was not the bride and groom tried to insert themselves into the spotlight. Maybe it was the best man who thought he was the he was the main attraction of the show maybe it was a matron of honor maid of honor who was a little too out front maybe parents maybe parents of either the bride or groom forgot that they were not the bride or groom and we know how awkward and painful and just difficult that can be and John's saying listen I'm not the bride, I'm not the groom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. You are confused about my role in God's plan of redemption. And so he lays it out for him in terminology they can understand. Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, is the bridegroom. And the people of Israel, the people of God, the covenant people of God, which we see this completely fulfilled in the church, this is the bride. This is a theme we see throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? That God is the husband, his covenant people are the bride. They are to be faithful to him. He is jealous for their affections. He only wants his people to worship him and not to chase after other gods. But time and time again, what do we see? The people of God portrayed as an adulterous bride. You think of the illustration given in the book of Hosea. God tells the prophet to marry an unfaithful prostitute. Why? To demonstrate to the people, to illustrate to them their unfaithfulness to their God. So there's this idea of God and he's married to his people. And this carries over into the New Testament. Paul tells Husbands, to love their wives like Christ loves the church. At the very end of Scripture, we're told of the marriage supper of the Lamb and the beautiful bride, the whole company of believers 
coming down from heaven. So the bride is God's people. The bridegroom is Christ. And John is saying, I'm the friend. Sort of the best man role. Only in this culture, you would do way more than simply hold her ring and plan a bachelor party. I want to quote J.C. Ryle here. He was very helpful. He says, according to the marriage customs of the Jews, there were certain persons called the bridegroom's friends who were the means of communication between him and the bride before the marriage. Their duty was simply to set forward and promote the bridegroom's interests and to remove all obstacles as far as possible to a speedy union of the parties. To accomplish this end and promote a thoroughly good understanding between the bride and the bridegroom was their sole office. If they saw the bridegroom's suit prospering and at last saw him favorably received gladly by the bride, their end was accomplished and their work was done. Say, this is, this is a little more involved than our typical responsibilities of a best man today. You are the means of communication between the two parties. You're setting everything up. You're making sure that everything goes smoothly. You're making sure that, that she receives him. And when at last that happens, you step back and you're filled with joy because you've done your job. And John's saying, that's my office. I'm the bridegroom's friend. And what you see happening, the very thing you're complaining about, the very thing that's bothering you, is what I'm working towards. When that's fulfilled and complete, that's when my joy will be filled and complete. Nothing made him happier than believers listening to the voice of Christ. He knew that the bride was not his. He did not covet the bride. He did not want the bride for his own. He was content to play the role he'd been given. And then comes this famous verse, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. I found a quote from William Carey. William Carey was an English Baptist. He was also a missionary in India. He's credited with being the father of modern missions. And there's a quote that has come to us. Uh, He's laying there dying on his bed, and a friend is sitting beside him, and William Carey looks at his friend, and he says, When I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. John the Baptist shared those feelings. He must increase, but I must decrease. Because he is the true master, and I'm only the servant. He's the true king, and I'm just the forerunner preparing the way. He is the rising sun, and I'm just a star that is fading at daybreak. 
Think of the illustration of sun and stars. That will really help you with verse 30. You can go outside at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, and you can see the stars that are still there, especially if there's, there's no clouds in the sky. You can go out and see the stars. But as soon as that sun begins to rise and the greater light breaks, those stars become invisible and we can't see them. One commentator I read, he illustrated it this way. The idea implied appears to be that of stars gradually fading away as the sun rises. The stars do not perish or really become less, but they pale and become invisible before the superior brightness of the great center of light. The sun does not really become larger or really increase in brightness, but it becomes more fully visible and occupies a position in which it more completely fills our vision. So it was with John the Baptist in Christ. He is the star who is not perishing, but he's just falling into the background. And the the light of Jesus is not increasing in brightness. He's just coming more into view. This is what John is telling his disciples. Jesus Christ must and will become greater and greater, and I must and will become less and less like the morning star until I'm completely invisible because of the greater light of the sun. And this should be the aim of every Christian. That amount of humility. Giving the praise to God, not coveting it for ourselves. Like William Carey, we could say, hey, when I'm gone, don't talk about me, but talk about my Savior. John continues the rest of this passage by telling his followers exactly who it is they're envious of. I want you to know, I've told you a little bit about the bridegroom already, but I want you to know exactly who it is you're offended by. This one you're referring to as the one who was with me over the Jordan or the one I authenticated with my witness. Let me tell you exactly who he is. He comes from above and is above all. He is the one whom God has sent. He utters the words of God. The Spirit is given to him without measure. The Father loves him and has given into his hands all things. Believing in him leads to eternal life and rejecting him leads to eternal ruin. That's who is offending you. And John says, he must increase. Meaning that you're worried about him taking some of my people. He could never take too many of my people. We could never love him too much. We could never trust him too much. We could never praise him too much. We could spend all of our days offering praise to him and making much of him, but it would never do him justice. Because this man that is offending you is the Son of God sent by the Father. John ends this incredibly 
important passage with the final verse, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, I could end here and say, all right, what have we learned today? Don't envy. Go home and don't envy. Be content with what God has given you. Rest in his sovereignty. Count Jesus and others as more significant than yourselves. Pursue humility. Believe in Jesus. Obey his commands. Do all this. And what do we see will happen? Well, you'll have eternal life. And don't do these things. Don't obey. And what do we see? The wrath of God remains on you. Now I could end with that. I've set out a bad example for you. Don't be like John's disciples. You've got a good example. John the Baptist. Be like John the Baptist. Go home and try to be more like John the Baptist. And make the right decision and do the right thing and be obedient. But I'm not going to end there. Instead of ending by telling you what to do, I want to end by telling you what our Savior has done for you. There's a line from the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. I thought it was appropriate. It says, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. You must know and remember what the Lord has done for you. Jesus Christ came from heaven for his bride, the believing people of God, and to rescue her because she is adulterous and she is perverse and she is unfaithful and she is wretched and she is full of sin. And he came and sought her because he loved her. So a question we need to ask, do we identify with this bride? Do we see ourselves as, as this need? Do, do, do we see our sin? Do we see that we need a savior? Has amazing grace saved a wretch like us? Are we a part of this people? Have we believed in and trusted in him alone for our salvation? Have you remembered what he came to come and die for his bride? That he died to save us and to go to the cross in our place and die our death so that we might have life. You know, there's language here in verse 36 of the wrath of God. It's, it's, it's an uncomfortable word, wrath. We don't like that word. The wrath of God. There's a warning here to the disobedient. There's a warning to the unbelieving. But hear me. The good news for the Christian is that the wrath of God fell on Jesus Christ on the cross. And none remains for his bride. None remains for his bride. 
The bridegroom stood in her place and he died for her and he shed his blood for her so that all wrath might be taken away. Ephesians 5 says he did this so that he might present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. That's what motivates our obedience. If I just went home and said, all right, I've laid out your rules for the week. Be like John the Baptist. Be humble. Don't envy. Rest in God's sovereignty. Go. You're probably going to come back next week worse than you were this week. I know I would. Seeing the bridegroom take his bride's place and take the wrath for her, that is what motivates our obedience. That's what kills envy. It's not trying harder. That's what grows our humility. That's what enables us to celebrate the success of others by remembering what he's done for us. That's the source of our joy. And Lord willing, that's what's going to motivate us for the next 15 years. One last point. It's short. John the Baptist knew all this about Jesus. His disciples came to him and were complaining, and then he just unloaded all of this on them. He knew that Christ was the bridegroom. He knew that he would increase and John would decrease. He knew that Jesus was from above and John was from the earth. He knew all of that. And yet, what is he doing in verse 23? In verse 23, John also was baptizing. He knew that the sun was rising and his light was fading, but he didn't quit. He didn't retire. He isn't discouraged and say, all right, he doesn't need me anymore. I'm done. He continued to do the work God had given him to do. He was faithful. Now, unlike John the Baptist's ministry, which was nearing its end, this congregation is only 15 years old, and Lord willing, there are many decades ahead of us. Lots of time to serve and be faithful and to do the work that he's given to us. And I don't know the future of this congregation, but I'm incredibly optimistic. I feel like the Lord has a lot of specific work that we can do in ways that we can love each other and our community. I'm grateful for what he's done, and I'm excited about the future. Would we remember Paul's words from Galatians 6? Like John the Baptist here who's still baptizing, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Let's pray together. Father God, would we see a clearer picture of your son, Jesus Christ? And in seeing him, would that motivate our obedience, would that motivate our humility? Would that enable us to rest in your sovereignty? Would it kill envy in our hearts? Father, let us see Jesus and what he has done for us out of his great love for us. We ask in his name. Amen.